Welcome to the 40th episode of the Known Pleasures podcast. This is the podcast where we discuss the music of the post-punk and new wave movements of the late 70s and early 80s. You will see in the description a link to a Spotify playlist made just for this episode. You will also see a link to our Facebook page, our Instagram page, and our Twitter handle. Now, while it's my turn to introduce today's band, I'm going to leave it in the hands of Dick Clark to ask Johnny the big question. Johnny, uh, some kids on the show yesterday mentioned a new kind of music, ska. You know anything about it? How should I know? Nothing but a modern offshoot of reggae. The updated white rock influences. Definitely upbeat. But never become really popular because even though they've made the backbeat more conventional, it's still too exotic for mass acceptance. Some people say that post-punk music is too moody, dour and depressing. Yes, it's all of those things and that's why we love it. But there was one particular genre that sprang from this movement that was all at once positive, political, infectious, melodic, alternative and danceable. It was a revival of the 60s ska movement that became known in the UK as Two-Tone. When I first listened to the debut specials album, I felt like my ears were all of a sudden open to a musical world I wasn't aware of, and a political world that was a world away from where I lived. They were both so alien to me, but at the same time really resonated with a 17-year-old kid that was constantly searching for something new. It's like I'd been selecting the same item from the indie menu for so many years when the waiter suggested I try the West Indies. And in this multicultural cafe full of delectable delights and international flavours, I had the opportunity to try a little madness, a scintilla of the selector, a sous-son of the beat, and some body snatchers to go. But before ordering anything, I'd always ask to see the specials. So we now, I think, are all agreed on what SCAR is. Pretty much. We've heard all the definitions we need. For those that don't know. So we talk about today's band, The Specials, Patty. Well, just a little sort of foray into the history of Coventry, which is yes. where, the, where The Specials came from. Uh, it's in the Midlands of England. It contains some excellent statues celebrating local residents and events, including uh, Lady Godiva and uh, Sir Frank Whittle, the inventor of the turbojet engine. Most importantly, though, <laughs> most importantly, I love the fact that the car industry was such a kind of a foundational point for modern Coventry and Detroit has become famous as Motown, Motortown mm. in the US exactly. and Coventry is kind of basically or was the Motown of Britain. And Why do they call it Cotown <laughs> or Cartown? <laughs> but why is yeah. that? What is it about building cars and making R&B music? Yeah, it's a good question. I think it's the fact that towns with major industry like that attract immigrants. Yeah. They attract cheap labour, which is migrant populations, which is a more exotic mix of people that mm. might otherwise be attracted. You might also suggest robotic, repetitive rhythms. Oh, yeah, I guess like, so. Like factories. Yeah, like, yeah, like, yeah. you yeah. know, production lines. Possibly. Yeah. Not, I mean, not I may be drawing a long so, road here. Yeah, no, no, I like <laughs> Okay, so, so you'll be on the assembly line. Someone starts up a constant beat and the, the, the guy starts hitting something on the offbeat. <laughs> and you're saying that's how Scar was created on the factory floor? <laughs> anyway, we digress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Coventry was the city in which uh, were assembled Jaguar, Rover, Triumph, Daimler, Humber, 
like a just an absolute like cavalcade, like a roll call of the British automotive gods, really. Yeah, it was a relatively affluent place, a boomtown, if you will, a drawcard for Asian and Caribbean immigrants. And that, of course, the car industry left Coventry somewhat susceptible during the Second World War to uh, attack. Mark, you might be able to tell us Well, it was that. heavily bombed by the Germans during the Second World War and... Um a lot of it was never really rebuilt until, well, into the 50s and 60s, I suppose. You, you hear stories about the city still being in ruins in parts. So the city, uh, obviously the automobile industry was important in rebuilding the city. So those workers, as you say, were brought in to kind of kickstart, if I can mm. use that phrase. Yes, yes, indeed. Uh, the economy there. So, uh, yeah. And uh, into that world was born a young lad with a full set of teeth called... Uh, <laughs> called uh, Jeremy Damas. Actually, he was born in southern India. He was, that's um, right, yeah. Yeah, his father was the Right Reverend Arthur Hounsell Damas, gone to Cambridge and gone on to become Dean of Bristol, and they uh, actually moved to Coventry in 1965 when Jerry was uh, 10 or 11 years old. He did lose his front teeth when he fell over his bike handlebars. Age Is that the 15. story? I've heard a different story, ah. and you may have heard this. So I don't know whether it's true or not that he lost his front teeth in a bar. Someone threw a pint glass and knocked out his front teeth when he was 19. Oh, that's so that's four years difference in a completely different scenario. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I heard someone throw a pint glass at him while he was riding his bike. Well, <laughs> maybe the story continues to be developable. Mm. He, he may have a new story this time it's, next week. It's part of the myth, but yeah. Mm. Go on. Uh, yeah, and uh, he decided to become a musician after he heard My Generation by The Who. And he's apparently said that there were two kind of major influences. One was My Generation by The Who. And the other was Graham Parker and The Rumours' song, Not If It Pleases Me. You can't stop me, not if it pleases me. And there's a gap of about a decade between the two, so I'm not really sure. <laughs> well, he didn't really listen sure. to any music between those two songs. <laughs> he was, Jerry was a mod in the 60s, a very young mod in around 65, 66, 10 or 11, as you say. He was born in 1955. He then became a hippie and then he became a skinhead. So he went through a, mm. a range of musical influences and, and importantly, looks as well. So he went from a very smart, sharp look mm -hmm. with the mods to the long-haired hippie look back to the kind of smart look with the skinheads. There's a fairly big gap there between uh, that and him uh, forming the band in 1977, uh, mm, the mm. Automatics, as they were called, and then the Coventry Automatics. Yep, yep. He played in a lot of bands around town. He was quite proficient, played some soul, some reggae, but his love was reggae. The idea that he had for this band, and you may want to correct me, is to combine reggae and punk, which are his two passions, reggae being a predominant passion, yep, yep. which was not a new idea. A lot of people were kind of toying with that. But mm. um, I think the members of the band that coalesced into the specials, as we know, kind of had joined by 78, is that yeah, fair to yeah, say? Yeah, And I think they toured with The Clash in 78 when Joe Strummer saw them, took them on uh, their on-parole tour in yep. 1978. Yep. From what I understand at that point, so we have Jerry Dammers, Linville Golding, Terry Hall, vocals, we'll talk about him in a sec, Neville Staple, Roddy Radiation, Nee Byers, Sir Horace Gentleman, <laughs> Or Horace Panter on yep. bass and John Bradbury. That's the core lineup of the the seven member specials. Yep. yep. Uh, Terry had been in a punk band uh, yep. called the Squad. Yep. And if you if you dig up any old photos of the band prior to their makeover, it's kind of interesting to see they had no particular look at this stage. It was just a bit ramshackle. Yep. A bit yep. of everything, and they used to play mixtures of kind of reggae stuff with punk stuff, and it was a bit of like both. And they go back and forth. No one could really kind of decide what to make of them. The band, the automatics or the various different names I had, 
They had a singer called Tim Strickland, and then Jerry spotted a sullen young singer in in the uh, occult squad, and he had a stage presence apparently based on Johnny Rotten. So that led to Tim Strickland being kicked out of the band. And the way Tim Strickland tells the story about being dumped for Terry Hall was, the band called round to take me for a pint and broke the news none too gently. I was already suspicious because Jerry had never bought me a pint before. <laughs> so <laughs> Dead giveaway. And so exit Strickland. Exit Strickland, enter Terry. Now, um, oh, Actually, can I say about Terry that yep. he was born in 1959, so he was quite a bit younger. And he was, yeah, four years younger than most of them at mm. least, yeah. And he felt like he was around grown-ups. He felt like, like a kid around grown-ups. And he had been working as a numismatist. Which is a coin dealer? Very good, yes. See, I just knew that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at a, uh, a coin and stamp shop near Coventry Railway Station and his boss said in subsequent news, he said, Terry's main duties were packing orders and dealing with the mailing. He seemed a decent young man. As he proved to be. That's a, that's a pretty decent uh, reference, I think. Now, there's two points here that I want to make before we get into any recorded product. Jerry Dammers forms two-tone records in 1979, comes up with a mascot called Walt Jabsko, which is the little man leaning in the black suit. Yes, inspired by a picture of Peter Tosh, was it, on the cover of an early Bob Marley album? Mm, very smart, the whole look. The idea is kind of a Motown thing, which is what we were referencing before, to have similar bands playing similar music. The interesting part about this point is also where Pete Waterman comes into the equation. Yes, Pete Waterman of, was uh, Stock Aikman thing. Waterman fame. <laughs> From Coventry, a proud Coventarian. Yes. If that's the correct term. Sure uh, he had a record store. There was also a DJ at yeah, the yeah, Locarno, yeah. which was the big yeah. club there. Yeah. And he was sort of friends with the guys or a couple mm. of them, had some sort of influence yeah, yeah, early yeah. on with them and yeah. even managed them briefly at some point mm. after hearing the, uh, a couple of demos, which we should try and dig up because they're really yeah. quite good. Mm. Even though he didn't like Terry's voice. He said Terry couldn't sing yeah. mm, and mm. that was beside the point, of course, because yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Jerry said he doesn't matter because he has presence yeah. and, and he does. He has something that really adds to what, what the specials became known yeah, yeah. for. But I think it's really funny that somebody who's so famous as Pete Waterman, <laughs> yeah. or generic, yeah. uh, you know, massively huge pop hits for Kylie Minogue and Dead or Alive and God knows who else, everybody yeah, yeah, under yeah. the sun. Yeah, no, absolutely. Had, had a hand in something. The guy who yeah. did Never well, Gonna Give You Up, whatever that guy was. Yeah, that guy. Yeah, yeah well, I think, I think he financed their first demo. Yeah, yeah, and I think he was kind of pushing them and I think yeah, that's yeah. brilliant. It shows he has an absolute love for music, which, which is kind of something I hadn't really yeah. picked up on with him before. No, because he came across as a bit of a businessman in, in well, the Well, he 80s. obviously is, yeah, yeah, a very smart businessman, whether you like what he does or not. Yeah. You know, he's no fool. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah, so but, there we are. In yeah. um, If you listen to those demos, they are not far off the, yeah. the kind of genuine specials sound, although there's a bit more of a kind of a rock vibe at times. So on, uh, on, on Concrete Jungle, mm. uh, yeah, the uh, guitar in, in particular is has still like a, a little bit of a... Uh, a term I know you like to use, Mark, rockist. Roddy, the guitarist, was into, you know, um, I think he was into rockabilly and all that kind of stuff. Mm, yeah, so he yeah, added yeah. a completely different sound to the whole thing. But yeah, um, yeah. I, I, I did want to talk a little bit about Two-Tone, how the bands that they'd signed up for that were The Beat, Madness, Selector, Body Snatchers and Specials. And the, I think the first five singles from each band was a hit, so they had one Something hit single like after another after from another, every band. Yeah. So Madness only stayed with them for one single. The Beat only stayed with them for one single. But they had a whole movement going on. And that's what I find really interesting about this. So this is kind of in the wake of punk again. 
Yeah, yeah. And here's this guy, Jerry Dammers, he comes up with a complete package yeah, yeah, yeah. To, as an alternative, as you said, Graham, in your, in your introduction, to the whole punk thing kind of going down mm. a bit of a, a dead end. You know, you've got a fresh look, it's clean, mm. it's sharp, it's ties, it's hats, it's loafers, suits, yeah. as opposed to punk's kind of yeah. thing. The sound is clean and precise mm. and it's kind of fun. And, and yeah, as you yeah, were yeah. saying... And a few people I've spoken to who didn't get into punk said they found two-tone a lot easier to relate to mm-hmm. and it seemed enjoyable. It was more melodic. You yeah. could dance to it. You yeah. could dance to it, that's right. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people felt alienated by punk mm-hmm. and people yeah, certainly yeah. in my age group who didn't like punk jumped onto yeah. the two-tone thing like the surf club mm-hmm. guys, the skater guys yeah, who, yeah. You, you know, just the year before had beaten you up yeah. were now into yeah. this sort of music. And I think yeah. it's really interesting that, that that coalesced over a very short period of time into a massive yeah. thing. It was the full Svengali thing, except it was the keyboard player in the band who, mm. who just happened to be the guy who just had the kind of Berry Gordy Motown thing of like, I can see this whole thing. Mm. And mm. in 1978, I think it was, when Special supported Madness or played with Madness in Hope and Anchor, oh, yeah, um, yeah. Uh, North London, Inner London kind of places. And that night, I think uh, Jerry stayed at the house of the Madness singer Suggs and the way Suggs told the story. Jerry was talking about this empire, you know, he wanted to build and two-tone <laughs> and the whole thing with all these bands recording, you know, etc. and being independent of the, the corporate machinery and all that. And Suggs said that he said to Jerry, gee, you're talking a pretty big game for mm. someone who played to 35 people in a pub tonight. Yeah. And then two <laughs> weeks later, he, he, he formed two-tone and actually started doing it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. But it's funny that they were doing the same thing in London. You were saying earlier, Graham, that, that they were doing the same sorts of things. Well, I thought it was unusual that, like, here was this band from Coventry playing Scar and dressing in a certain way, and at the same time in London, Madness were basically using the same kind of playbook. And as you can't start a movement with just one band, it was fortuitous for Jerry that uh, there were other like-minded individuals that could come together and, you know, help him realise the dream. But the thing I did want to mention was a song by an artist called Matumbe called Whatever Happened to Bluebeat and Scar. And uh, Jerry's band up to that point was playing basically reggae. And when he heard that song, he was like, yeah, whatever happened to Bluebeat and Scar? And um, that's when he made the, the decision to go in that direction. So, Mark, when did you first see the specials? I remember, and you guys might want to contradict me, the first time I saw Gangsters, the video for Gangsters, uh, which was released in May 79, which is a reworking of Prince Buster's Al Capone. Prince Buster was a massive influence. I think Jerry just bought a Prince Buster compilation and mm. basically played it to the band and said, These, this is what we're going to do. <laughs> I had never seen this look before. I had never heard this kind of music before, black and white video. It was all very gritty and real. I had no idea. I barely knew reggae. I had no mm. idea of Scar at all. So it came completely out of left field mm. for me at that age, and I'm sure that it did for a lot yeah. of people. But I think that was the secret. Do 
Should we talk about that uh, that first single? I mean, it's a great place to start. The speed with which the specials went from being this indie underground band into an absolutely massive Top of the Pops hit machine, it seemed to happen within about weeks. And I think mm. it was because they released Gangsters in May 79 and then after they released it, they got a deal with Chrysalis. And I think that propelled it into, you know, like the major distribution networks. Around that time, people like Chrissy Hind and Mick Jagger and so on were going to see them. And, mm. and I think this was before Gangsters had even made much of a dent in the charts. And they were, you know, already clearly like the next thing that was going to happen. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, the song just kind of bulleted to number six, I think it was. Mm. And the weirdest thing, and this is how indie and do-it-yourself the whole thing was, there was only one song by the specials on the single. Mm. The, you know, the B-side was by someone else altogether. It was the yeah. selector, wasn't it? Yeah, by the, the selector. They didn't, yeah. have, they didn't have any other songs, I think, that's, or nothing that they wanted to release yeah. anyway. So they asked, uh, well, Jerry asked a friend of his, uh, Neil Davis, to contribute a song that he himself had recorded with the drummer from the specials mm. the previous year or like 18 months earlier and just add a bit of scar, you know, guitar to Put it. Put a scar beat on it and you Bob's your uncle. So the first hit by the specials had a B-side by someone else. That's really That's unprecedented there. as well. <laughs> Can we talk a little bit about this first album? Because this probably had, I'm going to say, had more of an impact on me than maybe you, you two guys. I just remember absolutely loving it no, no, and being, I as I said, it. blown away by a completely new look and sound that I had mm. not heard any references in there that I knew of, as oh, I said, it was completely foreign to me. I'm not sure if you guys agree with this, but uh, I, I, I'm not sure whether Elvis Costello did a very lazy production job or whether he was a genius to just let the band play and keep it mm. simple. I remember being impressed that they'd gotten Elvis Costello to yeah, do their yeah. debut album. I was like, yeah, who gets yeah, to yeah. do that? Either Elvis is really, really cool and is into this or they know somebody. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. I think he did a great job. It basically mm. captures their life sound yeah, from absolutely. what I understand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. And I think he did a great job, maybe polished up a few things, mm. probably helped with some arrangements. Mm. Um, but that came out in October 79, so pretty pretty quickly after that single, yeah. uh, self-titled. Elvis did say that he wanted to get in and produce them before someone came in and kind of ruined, ruined it. it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, Jerry's main recollection, apparently, of the recording sessions is, he said, the main thing I remember is him, as in Elvis, sitting behind the desk and falling off his chair. We spent most of the time in the pub over the road and then we used to work during closing time, which was between four and six in the afternoon. And because pubs, pubs closed in. <laughs> for, for a couple of hours during the day for some obscure licensing, licensing laws. laws yeah. So it kind of sets the scene for a pretty kind of fun recording yeah. you know, method. Yeah. And this is something else that I didn't know about this album. I love this album front to back. Mm. Half of it is, is covers or reworkings. Now, back then, I, I as I said, I had no idea about any of these tracks and I've Looking through it, you can see uh, "Message to You," Rudy was was original. Uh, Rudy, a message to you yep. from our Dan, Dandy Livingston, I think it was. Yep. Uh, Monkey Man's "Toots and the Motels," Two Hots, Prince Buster. Uh, You're wondering now is uh, Skater Lights, Andy and Joe. Too much, too young is a reworking. Stupid marriage is a reworking. <laughs> so uh, Terry Hall said years later, it was basically you know we were a cover band at that stage, mm -hmm. but. The album as a whole, I'm not going to go too much into individual tracks because they're, they're all great, fantastic, mm. especially Message to You. Love that. It's a real encapsulation of Britain at that time. I know this has been talked about, you know, the whole look, the sound of it. 
I lived in England, as we've spoken about, for going on a year in 78, 79. And to me, I lived in a, a rural area, Norwich. And it really, really felt like this. England felt like it was in the toilet. It was at like the end of something. <laughs> there was the, the whole, you know, strikes and the, it was a winter yeah, yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. It just felt like a country just gone to the dogs. Mm. There was a lot of heavy racial tension. You've got a, a mixed race band, you know, five white guys, two black guys. And they just seemed to be actually sending that message out and this is what it felt like living there. So I, I don't know. That was what I got out of it. Yeah, yeah. But in a way they had a positive message but there was a lot of un, an undercurrent of violence mm. and threat but well, done the, in a new way. Yeah. Well, there was a whole racial thing going on courtesy of or the formation of the National Front mm. in the late 1960s which was uh, a merger of, I think, a few different far-right groups. So suddenly the racists or the far-right people were a bit more organised and had more political clout. And they got a 3% of the popular vote at, the, I think, the 1974 general election. And in some parts of England, they were getting much more of the vote in towns or cities in the Midlands, including like places like, 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 like Leicester and, and, yeah. and so on. They were getting you know, 15 16% or whatever of the vote. So there was this real sense that there is something pretty specific happening and you know there were one of the things that kind of fueled their anger was the influx of southern asian immigrants who had been expelled from Uganda by the dictator Idi Amin. So you know they were given I think like a couple of months to get the hell out of Uganda. So they kind of descended or a lot of them descended on Britain and they went where the work was. Mm. So that was the kind of thing that was you know and there you know there are echoes of that in the kind of decades since and you know prior to that no doubt and, and the mm. Syrian refugee crisis and whatever else uh, nowadays. But so, it didn't produce an album like this. No, 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 <laughs> no that's right but... It meant that the audience for the specials was a very, very weird one mm. because the skinhead kind of look that they had was, you know, there were different types of skinheads. Mm. You know, there were the far right kind of skinheads and there, you know, there, but there were the good skinheads and the bad skinheads. But then you also had the mod element. So you had, yeah, yeah, it wasn't yeah. just, I mean, they did appeal to a wide range, but don't forget when you're talking about that, it's a UK number four, so it's a pop hit. It's yeah, appealing yeah, to yeah. teenagers, pop kids. It was to it was number twenty in Australia, mm, which yeah, I, yeah. I find amazing. As I said, like I remember it being a big thing amongst my group of friends, but I didn't think it actually had that kind of resonance. But mm. it obviously did. Um, now, Graham, you were about to say the sort of influence it had on you. I know you talked about it a bit in your intro. Yes, I um, I bought the first album with a very striking cover. I love the whole look of the album. The actual inspiration for the cover photo is the cover for the My Generation album by The Who. I think Jerry was a, a bit of a fan. But first of all, I loved Gangsters, which appeared on the Australian pressing of the album. It's a, got a really unique chord progression uh, and lyric. Even Bernie Rhodes gets a, a bit of a name check at the, at the start. Yeah, yeah, he does, yeah. Right at the start? Yeah. I really like Do the Dog. It's funny, it's it's based on a Rufus Thomas song mm. called Do the Dog. Do the dog. And uh, when, I, when I looked up, the, that guy clearly had a dog fixation. In in 63, he released a song called The Dog, then Walking the Dog, then Can Your Mother Do the Dog, and then Somebody Stole My Dog. <laughs> this sounds like a domestic situation, yeah, yeah, basically. Well, Can somebody help me with my dog? After he really... <laughs> After he released Somebody Stole My Dog, he never released another dog song again. Well, that was the end of that. That was the end of that. Dog gone. But he went, he went on, <laughs> after that he went on to Chickens because he did. 
<laughs> he did the funky chicken and sort of thing. But so, uh, <laughs> but but yeah, in, interestingly, uh, interestingly, do the dog. That's quality research, Graham. <laughs> well, I've always known Rufus Thomas, but um, when I listen to his version of Do the Dog, it's just the title, you know, like a twelve-bar blues kind of thing. So the special song is really nothing like it. But yeah, a, a great song, and it's also got like a surf guitar sound. Mm. Um, and that happens a few times throughout the album. That gives it a bit of an edge, a bit of a different yeah, sound, I think, yeah. their sound. Um, mm. Chrissy Hines sings back up on Nightclub, on Nightclub as well, Club, which I yeah. think is kind of cool. <laughs> But the other thing I was saying to Graham earlier was I don't think they would have made a lot of money out of this album because all the royalties would have been going everywhere else because they, you know, they didn't write many of the songs. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, and also yeah. I didn't realise that Terry Hall wrote virtually none of the lyrics. Mm, I just yeah, assumed yeah, yeah. that he'd written them because they're yeah. so tied to yeah. my image of him. Yeah. But he but, literally only wrote a couple of songs mm. in, the, in the time he was with this incarnation of the specials. Jerry Damas wrote, wrote it all. Yeah. But there was also some great stories in there like the story in Too Much Too Young mm. and Stupid Marriage. They're really great lyrics. I think that's absolutely key to the success of the album, that the kind of vignettes, the short stories, and the just setting the scene, like it's scarily real and stark and kind of sad and brutal, actually. Mm. And very <laughs> English. Mm, and not a lot of hope, not a lot of... Except for the jaunty, upbeat tunes. Mm, you know, that's right, yeah, yeah. yeah. It paints a picture of Thatcher's Britain within weeks, I think it was, of Thatcher being elected. Mm. As you say, it was a particularly bleak decade with uh, union disruption, high unemployment, the three-day week. The automotive industry had collapsed, so now, you know, Coventry was a ruin in kind of... Again? Economic, yeah, economic terms. This time it wasn't the Germans' fault. No, no, that's right. <laughs> I did want to mention that the Scar songs they covered from the past they contain these very rudimentary chord progressions, whereas Jerry Dammer's chords were much more sophisticated. Like the chord progression to Gangsters, for instance, was more XTC than sort of classic ska. I listened to the album more or less when it came out, and so f for bit me... too chipper for you, was it? Like um, a bit too cheery? Well, fortunately, the, <laughs> I mainly concentrated on the lyrics. Right. They were heading down into Joy Division territory. You were happy with so. that, yeah. <laughs> happy with that. Um, for me, that album is so rooted in that era, yeah. like being 15, 16, 17 and being a bit shocked by some of the low-level kind of swearing and that kind of stuff. Birth control songs about that. All of that. Try wearing all a cap. People forced to uh, eat current buns for tea. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, yeah, so, I mean, I loved that album then um, and I and I love it now in, in exactly the same way and, you know, all of the songs which you've mentioned already... Um, that I love then, I still love now. And uh, well, so, I was going to yeah. say, too much, too young was released as kind of a live EP that went. To, they were first number one, which is on here. But it, I think they um, they did a sort of a live mm. version, a four track EP. I don't know what date that was because the next yeah January nineteen eighty was the live EP. Oh, okay, and that yeah that was that was the number one for them to um, get to number one with a live EP. Yeah, that te tells you that something is happening. Doesn't mm. happen very yeah, often. Absolutely. Can I talk about Rat Race? The next sure. single came out in May eighty. Which is a great song, and it wasn't sort of on either album. It was a no, non-album no. single, but yeah, I think it yeah. was subsequently put on more specials for the copy that I have the second album. This is my actual favourite uh, album of theirs uh, out of the two proper albums. 
uh, with stereotyped single Do Nothing. Enjoy yourself as a UK number five hit. I just found that they really stretched out on this this album. You know, you've got two different sides to it. You've got sort of side A is a little bit more traditional scar, still quite a few covers. Uh, it's slower. It's got Jerry's kind of music influences. Apparently they picked up touring through America, you know, being in hotels and, and lifts, and he kind of developed an interest in that sort of stuff. Yep. I like the fact that Terry Hall got to do a song, Man, at CNA. You're a big CNA fan? I am. I just, I just like the fact that he got to write some of his own lyrics as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, CNA is a, an apparel manufacturer? Is that right? It was a store. It's a store, okay. It was then. But yeah. not what? Not in Australia? No, not in Australia. Yeah. I do remember it from when I lived there. I couldn't tell you what sort of stuff it was. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, the, there's some great songs on here. I can't stand it. International Jet Set. I think it's a fantastic album. I think it's got real depth to it. You can kind of hear the seams starting to come apart a little bit within the band. Apparently, during the recording process produced by Jerry, people coming and going and leaving, mm. I'm, I'm out of here and coming back again. And it was, you know, within the space of a year, this was, yeah, was it, was it uh, September 80, the specials mm. album, More Specials was released. It was literally an hour, a year later and everything had gone so massive for them that, mm. th that it was all starting to fall apart. Mm. Um, Graham, where do you stand on more special? Uh, Rat Race, I agree with you. I love that song. Yeah. But I always think it's always easy for successful musicians to sing these kinds of lyrics. You know, don't don't join the rat race, don't work nine yeah. to five. I mean, most of us have to. Yeah, 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 <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, Just do what you love. That's yeah, what I love people saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> make, make sure you do what you love. Do you yeah. lo and it'll so, all follow mm, from there. So thanks for that. Yeah, thanks for that. I've got to go get up and go to work now. Yeah. I don't think it was meant to be having a go at good, honest workers. I think it was maybe more geared at uh, more kind of careerist type. People with money to fall back folk, on. That kind of thing. Yes. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, yeah, there's a bit of that in there. I think, I think that was written by... Um, Roddy Byers, that one. In anyway, that case, I'd like to apologise for <laughs> I'd to apologise to everybody <laughs> I may have offended. Um, uh, hey Little Rich Girl, which yep. I thought was a uh, Ice House song. Yes. That would be a good mashup. And, and Roddy, Roddy wrote that one as well. Oh, there you go. Maybe that's what I was thinking of. Um, and Do Nothing... Uh, is, is one of my favourite songs. Well, there's that sadness in the songs. Yeah. That's what I was about to say, what you were talking mm. about with the lyrics, Paddy. There's mm. a real kind of ennui. Did you hear this album, Pat? Uh, no, no, I, I'm coming to it pretty late. I September heard... 80, you were deep in Gary Newman's I was. bowels? I was. <laughs> That's where I was. <laughs> Not to surface still. Not for a while. No. <laughs> I'm a bit underwhelmed by it, I have to say. Really? Yeah, relative Ooh, to the, I may to have the to first ask you to album. Step because... outside. Yes. <laughs> I love this well, album. Well, the first side feels like, okay, we're going to do the first album again. What a you little were bit. Expecting. A little bit. Yes. Um, and I love 
mad at CNA. It's mm. got a real like the the guitar sound and, and the, the overall vibe is a bit different to, to anything else that they'd done before. Um, their lounge music side side two feels a bit more like well, it's just lounge music. And I kind of feel like, well, I'm not hearing anything fresh and new. And I mean, it was it was an extraordinary thing for the specials to do. It was really clever and really. That's what I'm saying. Don't you think that was out of, out of left field? Something new. I just I've heard so many thousands of hours of this Since. kind of music. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah so cool. it's just not not a very interesting direction for, from my point of view for them to to have gone into because they weren't subverting lounge music. They were just playing lounge music. True, and, true. And but then that's what they did with Scar. Mm. They weren't subverted. They were just playing it faithfully. Oh well, they were adding adding a bit of a, a bit of a punk thing yeah, to true, it. Yeah, true, true. So, but uh, uh, I mean, I think it's it's hard not to enjoy enjoy yourself. Yes, um, it's later than you think. Another mm. cover, yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, stereotype part two. Yep, I prefer it to part one. Yep, and uh, yeah, so not really the album for me. Fair overall. enough. Overall, I'll take I take your point. I the, think. Uh, the Enjoy Yourself reprise features uh, a couple of members of the Go-Go's. That's right. Mm-hmm. And, ooh, that's a whole other story. Enjoy yourself. It's later than you think. Enjoy Should we talk about that quickly? Yeah. Ter- Terry had a bit of a fling with um, Jane. Jane Weedland. Yeah. Ended up sending the lyrics to, um, what's the song? Alex Cecile. Alex to her. Uh, in the States after their secret tryst had ended. Uh, I think Terry had a girlfriend at the time. Mm. Um, Jane, I don't know what her status was, whether she was a free agent. <laughs> um, and she, uh, they wrote uh, The Go-Go's um, came up with some music and had a um, pretty massive hit with Our Lips to Seal. their biggest hit, I think. Yeah, and it's a great song. And once again, it's really quite sad, the lyrics. I think it's fantastic. Mm, so yeah, yeah, Terry yeah. was obviously stretching out mm. uh, at that point. <laughs> I mean, songwriting-wise. <laughs> he certainly was. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I've got a girlfriend and I'm going to have another one. Don't mind if I do. Um, mm. On that note, maybe we should move on to Ghost Town. <laughs> well, uh, uh, Do Nothing was a single. It was in, a single. In I December 1980. I, I don't know that it was on... The on all pressings of the second album, right? I think it should have been. It's a great song. Yeah, it think, was a non-album track in some territories. Mm, if I can use yeah, that yeah. word, I think in the UK it was not on on the album, and I think maybe in Australia it was. Mm. I do have to draw attention to their performance of "Do Nothing" on uh, Top of the Pops, uh, where they all wore Christmas jumpers. Nice. So you should look for that one on a YouTube. Whole, a whole different ball game. Mm. Um, they did a cover version of Maggie's Farm. That's right, the, the Bob uh, Dylan, Dylan track. Yeah. I haven't heard it, unfortunately. It's I good. Sh- I should have, but um, Smash Hits and, you know, I always go to Smash Hits for my for my Dylan cover analysis. Um, <laughs> they said it was horrendous. So Smash Hits didn't like it. Smash Hits didn't like the specials version, version of Maggie's Farm. Ghost Town, June 1981, mostly considered by uh, pretty much everybody as their crowning achievement. Yeah. Uh, it's it a three-track EP. It's um, backed with the song called Why and Friday Night, Saturday Morning. Terry wrote Friday Night, Saturday Morning, which is a great track as well. Out of bed at 8 a.m. Out my head by half past ten. UK number one, their last recording, their last thing that they did together... June 81 is basically two years they've had this unbelievable run of seven total uh, UK top 10 singles at this point and 
Ghost Town, I think, was fraught, you know, recording process. There was a lot of trouble getting it done, but Jerry knew exactly what he wanted to mm. do with it. This time. People talk about it as a comment on what was going on in England at the time, but it actually came out, I think, before these riots and general trouble that sort of uh, enveloped the UK in the summer yeah, of 81. Yeah. But it was, I think it the was, race riots were part of the marketing campaign. That was all part of the guerrilla campaign yeah. to get the single up to number one. <laughs> um, and it was very successful. It, it's still a brilliant song. It's still a haunting song. The lyrics are fantastic. Everything about it, if you can see and the And it video. was the single of the year in it was three, on, three magazines. It was on NME and Melody, everybody, <laughs> yeah. yeah. It was. It, it didn't get great sort of praise when it initially came out and it seemed to grow on everybody. Mm, yeah. yeah. What's the take on it, boys? I bought the 12-inch single when it came out and I absolutely loved it. Like, I love all three tracks. Yeah, all three tracks are great, aren't they? Mm, yeah, yeah, yeah. And remarkable to have three songs, each of which could have been a hit single in their own right. They did record it a few weeks. Oh, sorry, the Brixton Riot was a few weeks before the release of Ghost Town, but they actually recorded it days before the riot, I think. So mm. it was more a kind of uh, serendipitous, I suppose, that they recorded it around about the time of the riots in Brixton and uh, Toxteth in Liverpool as well, I think. And, yeah, it's extremely ambitious musically. Mm. Um, Some weird uh, chords in there. Mm, yeah, yeah there's yeah. all these diminished chords in it. It was, yeah. it was um, really well written. And, uh, yeah, I, I do like the fact that it's become immortalised in the TV series uh, Father Ted. Oh, really? Oh, where yes. There's, um, there's a village disco in one episode um, and the DJ turns up and realises that he's only brought one record along, which is Ghost Town by the Specials. <laughs> so there's a whole kind of sequence in the episode where... And it's like, oh, not this again. <laughs> Four hours of Ghost Town. So let me just thank you all now for coming along and ask you to stand for our national anthem. <laughs> Graham? It was good. I thought maybe the song was written about them, you know, too much fighting in the studio. Maybe. Yeah, yeah. Well, apparently um, mm. Roddy, the guitarist, well, according to Jerry, he couldn't get the diminished chords, he couldn't play them yeah. and punched a hole in the wall in frustration. This was sort of like the rot was setting in, which is a bit of a put down. Mm. But, um, yeah, he said he wouldn't let me show him uh, the notes. <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. But once again, it has a, this real elaborate chord progression. And mm. when I first heard the chorus of like banshees screaming, I thought this this is never going to be a hit. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's a long way from Scar. Yeah. I mean, I know it's got elements of that, but it's kind of Calypso and it's got all kinds of mm. different influences in there. And it's definitely them, but it's not anything like, you know, too much too young or whatever mm. else you want to, you know, from two years previously. To me, it's a shame that was the, probably the best thing they've ever done. Mm. And then they just collapse and it makes you think, what would the next album been like? Well. I think it would have been different too in the studio. Let me just say that. Which is the third album. Mm. Nice segue, Graham. Thank you. Yeah. Which well, is what, well, ironically what you wrote here on. <laughs> today. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, I'm going to ruin the segue by going back to a ghost town. Oh, God um, damn it. Oh, you've, it's all right. You've, I've done that I, I just can, can you edit that in the right way? Because <laughs> yeah. that was good. Yeah, this next thing I'm going to say. You, you always I, do this. You're yeah. never fucking finished. Yeah, you, 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 can, you, can, you can either delete what I'm going to say or just surreptitiously sort of plunk it about three minutes earlier. Okay. But the synthesizer with the kind of eerie, you know, ghost town sounds that you might describe the sounds on ghost town as being ghost town sounds were played on a kit built synthesizer, a transcendent 2000. 
thousand power tran, I think. And it's apparently on display, this very keyboard, at the Coventry Music Museum. So, and I think it's five pounds entry. Ooh. Oh, so, should we head there after? Yeah, yes. Yeah, so I just read this morning the car from Ghost Town is there as well. Oh, really? Ah, yeah. There's a whole bunch of things, even there, though yeah. it's not a yeah, musical instrument. <laughs> that was one of the few cars. I think it's a Vauxhall Cresta. Is that right? Yeah, I think um, so. And I, I think Vauxhall was one of the few manufacturers that wasn't Coventry. Oh. I think. I think. <laughs> Damn. God damn it. That could have been great. So back to the bike you rode in on. Well, we get, well that was a good ending to that. But I just wanted to say that this was the, the, the last song, the last thing they did. They pretty much broke up in uh, the, the Top of the Pop studio after the performance. Uh, well, either before or after the performance. The Fun Boy 3 members <laughs> announced yeah. that they were leaving. Yeah, <laughs> did yeah. one of the people on Top of the Pop say, and now here's Fun Boy here's 3. Fun Boy 3. Yeah, just, <laughs> just let me get a change. <laughs> so that was uh, Linville Golding, Terry Hall and Neville Staple left to form Fun Boy 3. Uh, had their own kind of large success with that, but we'll talk about that a little bit in a minute. Can we talk about the third album in the studio? Or should we go the other way around? Well, we're not talking about Fun Boy 3. Because just to mention that the lunatics have taken over the asylum was October 81, I think. Mm. So that was only a few months after Ghost Town. And mm. Fun Boy 3 yeah. had a whole career by the time the specials, a.k.a. album, came out. Like, you know, it might have th- even been over. Three years later. Well, they certainly didn't muck around, and I think no. that tells you that there were problems within the band that um, weren't fixable. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, as you say, the third album, which was released as in the studio, Special AKA, was released in June 84. So I think there was a good, that's good three years, yep. isn't it, yeah, yeah, to, yeah, um, right. to get that done. There was a single called The Boiler in the interim in 82. Which, which is, is which is a remarkable. Pretty hard work. It's kind of harrowing, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. I won't it's, go too much into it, but if you ever have a chance to listen to it. It's more or less a woman's spoken word account of an evening out that ends in sexual assault and her, what, screaming and... Breaking down, yeah. Mm. It's, it's oh. tough. It's actually quite a jaunty kind of fun thing up until a certain point. I went out shopping last Saturday. I was getting some gear and this guy offered to pay. And the idea of releasing that as a single. Yeah. Thinking, yeah, this will get airplay. Number 35 it no, went got, to. It got to number 35. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is not that much lower than um, the lunatics have taken over the asylum, which got to number 20. Well, ironically, in the studio, the third album reached number 35, so it was far less successful than mm. uh, either mm. the Specials debut album or more Specials. Um, yeah, yeah. I know that we weren't going to talk about this album, but I went back and listened to it. This is just Jerry on his own, everyone should realise. It's good. Pretty much got John Bradbury on drums. Uh, Horace, Roddy, Linville contribute a little bit here and there to a few tracks. But he's got like three vocalists on it and I think that's the real flaw in it. Mm. It suffers from uh, sounding like a solo album with a bunch of singers on it. All great singers. But the singles I really like, War Crimes, Racist Friend is great. Nelson Mandela obviously needs its own, you know, discussion. But what I like most about you is probably my favourite song on the album, Jerry Mm. singing in this kind of weird falsetto. But I just imagine Terry Hall singing that and I just think this album, if it had had the original members or at least Terry singing on it, Mm. it could have been the best of the three specials albums. With that song, I think it actually reminds me of 10cc. 
If that remember, song specifically. If you remember Godly and Cream when they did their falsetto singing, mm. that's what. Uh, but what it's I a like. really weird melody, isn't it? Like, mm. like it's not the easiest thing to sing. Mm. Yeah. But the lyrics, I mean, everybody's been there, Patty. What What I like most about you is your girlfriend. You've yeah, been yeah, there. Yeah. How <laughs> many of us have been in that situation? I'm currently. You're currently in it now. Um, if you watch the video, it's hilarious because he's talk. He's trying to talk to this guy and completely not interested in. That he's trying to talk <laughs> yeah. to the girl behind, and the guy's this stereotypical hunk of the eighties with like a sailor hat and blonde hair. It's really quite funny. This mm. video. Uh, Jerry did this album, produced it, but Elvis Costello interestingly produced "Free Nelson Mandela." Mm which went on to be like a massive mm, hit and mm. propelled well, yeah. Jerry into his yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. other yeah. work that he, that he did yeah. probably two years ago. What, do, what do we say, a lesser-known Bob Geldof? A lesser-known Bob Geldof, yeah, yeah. We could talk about the album and then talk separately about the Nelson Mandela, Free Nelson Mandela song because that's sort of worthy of its own sort of sub-discussion. But we can do that. I really like this album, funnily enough. It's still got that kind of lounge music kind of vibe from, mm. from time to time but with a, an unsettling edge to it some weird melodies and some I feel like Jerry was trying to take the lounge music thing into a slightly different direction and and so a song like War Crimes for instance just has weird melody weird rhythm but mm. but still has that kind of yeah a long way from, from Scar and closer to well for want of a better term lounge music kind of vibe Like Rhoda Dakar, mm. if that's how you pronounce her name, from was she from Body Snatchers. Body Snatchers. She is one of the lead vocalists, and she says uh, recording that album was the final madness. Two whole years stuck in the studio, overdubbing, singing the same thing fifty times in a row. Going back in a studio was something that filled me with horror for a very long time. It's so, very well produced, the album. Yeah, yeah. Like listening to it now, it's mm. intricate. Yeah, very, yeah, very slickly done and really perfect. But it misses a bit of an edge that the, mm. the, the other band well, members... the first song, Bright Lights, is like a, a dance number, like a funky dance mm. number. Mm. So far removed from Scar. But the lyrics are really sad and depressing. It sounds like he's like a shut-in and basically a lot of the songs about how he can't leave the oh, house. Oh, yeah, what well, Housebound. And, and Alcohol, that song, Alcohol, is really depressing. Why it? the hell wasn't Housebound released during the COVID lockdown? It could have been re-released, yeah. <laughs> I think, on a side note, I think Jerry Damas is a genius. I, I know that, you know, he can't take the credit for everything that the specials did, but mm. the depth of his kind of ideas and knowledge is, mm. is quite incredible just over these three albums. I don't have a huge handle on what he's been doing subsequently, but yeah, uh, it, it really is something, and as we said earlier, to come up with the idea for this whole thing initially is fantastic. And uh, he's, he's no mug on the keyboards, that's for sure. He mm. can certainly play. So free Nelson Mandela, 5th of March, 84. I got to number nine in the UK, number one in New Zealand. It was banned in South Africa, surprise, surprise. Bruce Springsteen has covered it. Uh, NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg had it as one of his Desert Island discs. 
it's entered the, the kind of popular consciousness in a way it's, that... It um, was everywhere at one point, mm, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, unfortunately, Margaret Thatcher, as ever on the right side of history, described Nelson Mandela's party, the African National Congress, as a terrorist organisation. So I think I think Jerry wins that, um, that debate. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, so it's such an iconic song. It sort of has a life beyond the lyrics and the chord progression mm. and so on. I, I never read up on it, but was he ever freed? <laughs> Whatever happened? I think it was based on a true story. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah no, it's uh, well, it, it it certainly gave him uh, gave Jerry a lot of uh, work to do over a couple of years after organising concerts mm-hmm. and so on. So the reunion, Mark. Well, I, I have that they got, they all got together with the idea of touring again, possibly recording new new songs. The seven members. But they went into the rehearsals and uh, there was conflict with Jerry almost immediately. I don't really know what that was, musical differences. But in any case, the six remaining members of that of the band decided to go on tour in England and then uh, a world tour and uh, play all those songs to the fans and came to Australia in uh, July uh, 2009. And did you go and see them? Well, funnily enough, Patrick, I've got a story about that. Uh, oh, I, used to, I used to have a clothes store here, and one day I was in there, you know, folding and tidying in Sydney, oh. tidying and folding, maybe a little dusting. <laughs> I see a fellow lurking in the corner wearing a pair of uh, Maharishi trousers. You won't know what that is, but some of our listeners will. And I thought to myself, that looks like Terry Hall. So I sidled over and I said to something along the lines, may I be of any assistance today, sir? Something like that. Mm. Or probably You're just, hello, Terry. Uh, and he said hello. We ended up chatting, and I sort of, you know, made it known that I knew who he was. Uh, we ended up talking for quite a long time in the store. I said, "Oh, you're obviously here." What were you talking about? Our oh, clothes. He's, he's a big Man United fan. We're talking Man about United football. being Manchester United. Yeah, being a soccer team that yes. plays in the uh, English Premier League, in England, which is a country <laughs> is not really part of Europe. Anyway, <laughs> go- Google that if you don't know what uh, Man United is. Anyway, can I continue my story? Yeah, no, please do. Um, so we're talking, and I said, "So you're here, obviously playing playing a show tonight at the Enmore in Sydney." He goes, "Yeah, you're coming." And I said, "No." <laughs> I, Love the band, favorite band ever. Are you coming? No. And he said, "Why?" And I said, "Because I'm really, really reluctant to go along and see something for it to be shit." Because I used to love you guys. I love you. You said specials. that to him. I did. And I said, <laughs> "I don't want to be disappointed." Because so how was the band sounding, Terry, these days? <laughs> I really don't want to see your band. I think you're going to be yeah. shit. And he said, yeah, I totally get that. I thought the same. Mm, I think the same. He said they really had to persuade me to actually do this. And he said, but I have to be honest, it's really good. Mm. You should come. And I was like, nah, I don't. <laughs> I really don't want to, Terry. Tez, mate, leave it. I said to him, let it go. Tell. No. Tell. Yeah. Tez Tell. Yeah. We were on that sort of name basis yeah, yeah. by then. Anyway, yeah. So we had a good chat for all with me basically saying, no, I don't want to go, and him saying, you should come. <laughs> so, to the singer from the specials. The one of my heroes. <laughs> one of the smartest dressed men ever in pop music. Love him. Love his voice. And a Man United fan as I am. And in the end he says, look, here's what I'll do. I'll give you a couple of backstage passes and tickets. Uh, leave them at the front for you. If you want to come, come along. If you don't, that's fair enough too. So I said, look, I can't promise anything. I probably won't, but thank you. Probably won't. So <laughs> we ended up having a great old chat. He was the loveliest bloke. Uh, he probably probably in the store for 45 minutes an hour. And so this was, I think, a Tuesday. And so I, I called up my friend Curtis, who was also a big specials fan. I said, look, do you want to go? We've got tickets. You know, if you want to go, we'll go. 
So we went and it was fantastic. He was right. They were I should point <laughs> out that Mark didn't ask me along, but anyway. Well, no, I said a friend. I called up a friend, <laughs> which was Curtis. And, um, and yeah, they were amazing and I was so glad I went. I was really, really glad I went. And at the end of the show, you know, I said to Kurt, do you want to go backstage and say hi? And we were both a bit like shy to do it and we both said, no, let's not, let's just go. And I really, really regret that because he obviously passed away last month in December. And I really wish I'd just gone back and even said, thank you, you were right, and thank you for like yeah, yeah, re- yeah, yeah. for me reliving my uh, teenage years and really not being disappointed you weren't shit. It was great. <laughs> and one of those things, so kids, if you get an opportunity to meet your heroes and do that, do it, because I wish I had. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I got to see the band and, and I got to meet him and he was he was lovely. I've been really lucky to meet some of my yeah. heroes and he was definitely one of them. Yeah, I, 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 I love that story about how how it, it could have been not the greatest, you know, meeting of all time. He's famously unsmiling, mm. you know, as a he character. He suffered from depression yeah, and yeah, yeah. bipolar, I think he has, yeah, was yeah. diagnosed yeah, no, absolutely, with. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, it, it could have been like... Yes, yeah, slightly underwhelming. That happens. And, yeah, you know, yeah. I won't name it, but sometimes you go to gigs with these things and it is you wish you hadn't gone. Yeah, But yeah, this yeah. was not the case. And, and I mean, I don't know if we're going to finish up now, but I, I feel the two-tone period, that two years, was as exciting as anything that had happened mm. in, that, in that really frenetic short time frame that we talk about, that six years. Yeah. And it felt like a whole new possibility. It felt like new music was coming out. There was an identity around it. There was a look, which I love, the fashion part of it. Uh, it was new for me. I'd not heard that music or seen that look. And the songs just kept coming. Mm. And if you finish up on Ghost Town, you know, and just say, well, that was the end of that period, well, then there's probably no better ending. I th- and I think we can all agree that, well, Jerry Damas is a genius. But those seven members, what they had for those two years, I don't think we've seen the like of since. And I'm going to stand by that. The two-tone legacy, the legacy of two-tone in Britain and in Coventry in particular, in particular, I really like the fact that in 2019, the Coventry City Football Club introduced a special kit celebrating two-tone with the two-tone design, all the stuff that Jerry in particular commandeered back in 78, 79 with a checkerboard design and featuring Walt Jabsco. Walt Jabsco logo on the back of the shirt, I think, and it became the fastest-selling shirt in the club's history with orders from 40 countries. Wow. So there's that, and they reintroduced a slightly different two-tone kit. This was for some of their away games, so they, they wear sky blue normally. So they reintroduced a slightly different one a couple of years later. And also, every time Coventry City wins a game, what song is played over the PA, but Enjoy Yourself by the Specials. <laughs> 